0: No sir, and, T1 naming Noosa and King Tommy's humour. Central to Noosa Shire's identity are places that comprise it. How did they arrive at their names? As is true of place naming in every part of Australia, there are many stories, some conflicting. Here we focus solely on place names of the core area of Noosa and Tawantan. The story of these words focuses attention on an important 19th-century headman, an important elder, known as, King Tommy. How Aboriginal place names were recorded, Noosa Shire has many towns with local indigenous names. The process by which these words became formally endorsed was haphazard. From the 1840s, German missionaries such as Reverend Christopher Eiper and explorers such as Ludwig Leichhardt took along Aboriginal guides from some nearby areas, not necessarily local, asked about specific landforms, and transcribed the oral words as best they could. Settlers during the 1850s to 1870s made similar inquiries and added to the mix. Unfortunately, there was rarely any consistency in how the names were spelt by Europeans. Pioneers often chose to say and write indigenous words in a manner that was either humorous or easier for them to recall. Additionally, cartographers wrongly copied the results, and their errors were repeated. By the 1860s to 1880s, as white blackfellas developed a greater sense of nationalism, they increased efforts to capture and use indigenous place names. They viewed this as a way of developing a truly local identity, replacing English-derived names with indigenous ones. In 1899, Queensland Place Names Board was formed, comprising a committee of just three academics, only one of which was a linguist. From then until the 1980s, the board researched and approved use of Aboriginal place names, relying on input from indigenous informants interviewed by police at various depots, the memory of old settlers, and, most of all, the linguistic expertise of Fred Watson, who had meticulously recorded local names and languages in his travels and work across many rural properties. Tall Tales from Noosa it was during the search for local place names that a popular story emerged, proclaiming Noosa and to wanton not actual aboriginal Kabi words but simply a case of muddled and misunderstood English. In 1929, linguist Fred Watson, the most influential member of Queensland's Place Names Board, noticed that the S in Noosa seemed out of place, being a sound almost never encountered in aboriginal languages. Watson puzzled as to the word's meaning. I have never heard definitively what is meant by this name. One definition, given by one who was very positive on the matter, was that a white man asked a native if he knew the meaning of the word, and the native replied, No sir. Watson made excursions up into the Maruchi and Noosa district in the 1930s and 1940s. It appears he heard the story at this time from one of the Noosa settlers. Probably the most complete rendition of "No Sir" appears in History of Tawantan Noosa District, 1957. This was a school project organized by Chas McKenzie and Vera Young that constituted one of the earliest forays into the region's history. The account runs as follows, Mr. Fuller, Reverend Edmund Fuller, wanted to make gentlemen of the Aborigines, so he taught them the Lord's Prayer and to say, yes sir, or, no sir, the Colgoa with passengers on board, was coming into the river, when she grounded on a sandbank and she had to stop there till the tide flowed and floated her off again. There was one passenger, a man, who was in a hurry to land so that he could go to the goldfields in Gympie. He became very fidgety and kept asking the captain, Captain Goodall, could not something be done? He became such a bore that the captain put the passengers ashore. On the shore were a number of aborigines and the irate passenger asked them the name of the place. The natives, not understanding what he wanted, said, Noosa, no sir. Later on, the Colgoa barely touched the wharf in Tawantan when the passenger walked up to the boat agent, Mr Jack Madden, and, told Mr Madden of his delay, and of the boat being stuck at Noosa, Mr Madden said to Captain Goodall, you said you were stuck down at the bar. He says you were stuck at Noosa. Mr. Madden went back to the passenger and asked him who had told him it was, Noosa, the passenger replied, I asked a blackfella and he said it was Noosa, and so a new word, Noosa was coined. In another passage in the same manuscript, the naming of, Tawanton is similarly ascribed to a misunderstanding, again involving Reverend Fuller, this time specifically with King Tommy, the main Noosa elder. Missionary Fuller, a primitive Methodist, came to this district and endeavoured to convert the Aborigines. The spokesman for the Aborigines, King Tommy, used to go to the mission station for food, flour, tea, sugar and for tobacco. These were brought from Brisbane by the Colgoa, a vessel of 62 tons, and landed at the wharf. Once the vessel was grounded on a sandbank for some days. King Tommy went to Mr. Fuller for his supplies. He was told there was nothing for him but that he would be given his usual ration when the vessel floated free of the sandbank. Tommy was disappointed and later came round again with the same result. This went on for four days and the vessel was still on the sandbank. Mr. Fuller had to again and again refuse Tommy, who losing his patience, clenched his fist and shouted, Flour, backy, Sugar, as he went away, he remembered he had not mentioned tea, so he turned around and shouted, Tea, Want, Um. Mr. Fuller went to the wharf and told the people there, Tommy, Tea Want Um, this became a byword and that was the origin of the word, Tea Wantum. The account concludes that these misunderstandings were so hilarious that they became a password among the white timber getters, fishermen and seafarers. No source or author for this account is named. However, David William Bull wrote some of the book's other pieces. The two stories bear many stylistic similarities to those in his other work Shortcut to Gimpy Gold, although the racist ridicule is more open in the latter. In Shortcut, we are told, the dark inhabitants used to hover around the campfires. Asking for a handout, beg, ing, T-wantum. If David Bull was the author, which seems probable, it needs to be remembered that he was born shortly after the founding of Tewantan. This means that whatever he repeated was certainly second-hand, derived from another, unknown source. Despite such uncertain origins, this tale became the dominant narrative concerning the meaning of the words, Nusa and, Tewantan. It was repeatedly trumpeted as an example of the stupidity and depravity of Aboriginal people. The tales can be read in Clem Lack's articles of 1966 and 19718 and in Nancy Cato's definitive work on Noosa's history, 1979.9 colon Monk's Noosa The Way It Was 2000 offers the most recent rendition. Point one zero Monk's was especially convinced of the story's accuracy. This I believe to be the true story of how Tawantan and Noosa gained their names and as told to me by my father as a child. Several of the later versions name King Tommy as the First Nations person responsible for the garbled origin of Noosa and Tawantan. Chronicling the use of Noosa place names Despite the appeal of this folklore for some residents, in the 1960s, E.G. Heap, Queensland's chief librarian, was emphatic the stories should be given, no credence. His reason is simple, maps and other accounts completely contradict this narrative. Firstly, maps show Noosa already had an English name since 1842, meaning there was no need for the Colgoa captain or others to invent one. Nusa was first known as Bracefells, sometimes spelled Bracefields Head, but from maps of 1845-1848, it seems it was more usually called Low Bluff, or South Bluff. By 1848, the lake estuary of the Noosa River was being called Laguna Bay. This and South Bluff were the main names used on charts to indicate Noosa during the 1850s. 16. By the time of Landberg's 1859 map, indigenous names such as Karee, Karora, and and Mundi Creek, Yumundi Creek were added in the vicinity. Thus cartographers were using local indigenous place names for Noosa region by 1859. Noosa, and, King King Creek, first appear in common use by 1863, and probably earlier. Indeed, in the North Australian of the 3rd of October 1863, William Pettigrew, a pioneer businessman and timber merchant, describes his visit to, Noosa, Laguna Bay and the lakes there. His audience must have been well aware of where, Nusa, was situated, as he made no effort to explain his location. Rather, Pettigrew stated his visit was, all on the intelligence which I had received from various parties as to the timber that grew there, the timber-seeking parties likely included Daniel and Zacharias Skyring, who had been running cattle on their 29,000-acre lease, Parima, since 1857, meaning local, settler, use of, Nusa might extend even this far back. Pettigrew states, Noosa is a headland of considerable altitude, thus he indicates the word was already attached to the headland, as today. Also in October 1863, there are two shipping references to Noosa and Noosa Bay. Pettigrew's 1865 map used Noosa and Noosa River, exactly as today, and included other spots such as Karui, Weber, Parisian, and Tinbiwa. This shows all these were commonplace by the 1860s. By 1866 we have frequent shipping references to, Noosa River, and, Noosa, is also shown on Bedwell and Bray's map of 1868. The earliest written mention of Tawanton also comes from Pettigrew, which is unsurprising given he was the main timber merchant. In July 1867, he states he, went up to Tuwantan. Between 1869 and 1870, a naval navigational map was drafted by lieutenants Bedwell, Bray and Connors covering the east coast of Queensland. It indicates, low bluff, with, Noosa, in brackets, Tuwantan, Weber, Karoiba, Cuthuriba, Boreen Point, and, Siwa Hill. Thus, by this time, many Noosa Shire places already had their modern spellings, even though they had no white residents. Tewantin under various spellings, precedes the creation of the town of Tewantin by about four years. Between July and August 1870, we see the first regular mention of Tewantin as, Tewantin, 24 or, Tewantin, in Brisbane newspapers. The original plan for the town, July 1870, used the spelling, Chewinton, which also appears in advertisements and articles from September 1871 onwards. By 1870, Tewanton, or, Tewanton was used to denote an area that contained grain awards selection, which was resumed to create the current town. Ward bought the land in 1869.28 when, in 1871, lots were sold to create Tawantan, the area was already defined as the parish of Noosa, town of Tawantan. Impossible Yarns Thus, we can see the word, Noosa, was in use by 1862-1863, and, to Wanton by 1867, in both cases, the place names precede White Settlement. This makes it impossible for the names to have resulted from an interaction between King Tommy and Reverend Fuller. Fuller did not arrive at Noosa until late 1872, and the Colgoa was not bought until 1873. In other words, Fuller and the Colgoa that were supposedly involved in King Tommy's pronunciation error didn't come to the region until 5 to 10 years after the place names were already in common printed use. From blanket-giving lists, we know King Tommy was 28 years old in 1882. This means he would have been just nine years old when the name, Noosa, was already being used in Queensland newspapers, and 13 years old when Pettigrew gave us our first reference to, Tuinton. In other words, Tommy was too young to have been a spokesman for the carby in the manner the stories imply. Towards a more viable explanation, the role of King Tommy. What then do we make of these tales? Why is King Tommy the common thread to these stories? Part of the answer may lie in the centrality of King Tommy in these stories of local place naming. He was one of the main indigenous informants on local place names used by the Queensland Place Names Board. Linguist Fred Watson had much faith in King Tommy's command of local languages and would ask him to clarify pronunciations. Tommy was especially well known to the local settlers, being part of their fishing and logging teams. Tommy's humorous second factor was that Tommy was famous for his wit and humor, which he generally delivered with a poker face, making it easier to fool his victims. In the boat tours Tommy operated, he was known for keeping visitors in stitches with jokes and songs. King Tommy is the vocalist of the neighborhood. When he can be persuaded to lay himself out to please, he trolls away in a style that never fails to amuse his audience. Telling gammon or nonsense was a popular aboriginal pastime. Settlers noticed that Aboriginal people were especially keen to fool whites. We know that Tommy liked to poke fun at European pageantry. He often attended indigenous fishing festivals at Redcliffe, as shown from early photos. In 1888 at Redcliffe, he, apparently in jest, conferred knighthood on a leading citizen of Brisbane. King Tommy was attended by a number of officers of his staff, with his and their spouses and suites, all being attired in the fullest costume of Aboriginal simplicity. The knighthood was duly conferred with unusual and distinctive Honourable Hours. Point three five. In a similarly mocking mood in 1882, Tommy entered into a «serious» dialogue with a parliamentarian, Mr. Blackfelliston. The latter sought Tommy's opinion concerning Nunda, as there was public debate at the time over replacing «German Station» with Nunda for the name of the station and suburb. Tommy proceeded to offer an explanation and subsequently, Blackfelliston took Tommy's «information» to a hearing of the Queensland Parliament, with hilarious results. This «information» was written up at the time. Mister. D-I-C-K-L-E-D-G-E, without notice, asked the minister, what was the reason or reasons, if any, for changing the name of the, German Stadio, railway station on the Sandgate railway line to that of, Nanda, railway station? The minister, in answering the honourable member's question, it will be necessary for me to give the history of the change. There are different definitions of the word Nunda, and as there was this confusion among them, I took the only course open to me, and that was to call in the head of the tribe, who is a really intelligent blackfella man, but smells offensively strong of colonial rum. However, King Thomas I, commonly answering to the vulgar name of Tommy, afforded me. Information in his power. I can give to honourable. Members the proper definition of the word, but to do so with point, and to impress the subject upon the minds of Honorable. Members as it was impressed upon my mind by Tommy's narration. I must ask Honorable. Members to cast their minds back some 40 years in the colony's history. About that time there were landed in Moreton Bay twelve missionaries, made up of the following nationalities, two Scotch, six German, one Irish, one Dutch, and two Frenchmen. At Nunda, German Station. Their mission being to convert the Aborigines from Savagery to Christianity. The spot selected for the tent was looked upon as very suitable, it being as near as possible in the center of a large aboriginal population, which was made up of several tribes. Every night for nine successive nights thereafter one missionary per night mysteriously vanished. The Honorable Members have doubtless guessed that the ten missing missionaries were smuggled away by the blackfellas. The unfortunate men were taken one a night, and each formed a great supper for the savages. When the party took off for the purpose of supplying that evening's meal approached the missionaries' tent with the intent of taking the 11th victim, they found the place empty and after searching carefully all round and finding nobody about, they returned to their camp, where they were anxiously awaited, and made the announcement, Nunda, which means, as I'm informed by King Tommy, none left, none there. Mr. Fonda, I rise to a point of order. Members, chair, chair, let him finish what he has to say. The minister, I have only to say, in conclusion, that one portion of King Tommy's narrative gave me quite a new light with reference to the peculiar. Tastes of cannibals. I asked Tommy if he had ever eaten white or black man, to which he replied, many times when me pick a ninny, me eat, em part of ten fellow missionary you talk about, and that bit down long time ago, long nunder, which did you like best, white or black man? Fat fellow Scotchman best fellow, him drink, em big fellow whiskey, and taste. Same as glass of rum, but are Irishmen not as good eating? Baal, no, too much eat, m one another, long that fellow, him like, m teetotaler. Parliament erupted into confusion and anger due to Tommy's story. The Speaker adjourned the House. One member demanded King Tommy be arrested for murder and that Mr Blackfelliston be impeached for even retelling such a dark tale. Mr. Fonda, I again rise to a point of order, and I don't hesitate to say that it is infamous, coolly making a statement to the effect that that old villain, who he says is called King Tommy, is still at large in the face of his admission of having taken part in the murder and eating of our countrymen. Let us impeach the Mr. Blackfelliston. Tommy's Nunda story was sheer gammon. There is no record of any German missionary being killed at Nunda, let alone cannibalized. Moreover, the mission closed in 1848 six years before Tommy was even born so he could not possibly have been there as a child. This also means Tommy could never have, eat, m part of ten missionaries, the actual, turbal, yagara, meaning of Nunda has been recorded as, a chain of ponds nothing to do with missionaries or their quantity. Tommy's dislike of Reverend Fuller. The gammon Tommy spun concerning Nunda bears striking similarity to the, no sir, and, want him, tales. 1. Two or three English words are strung together for comical effect. 2. Tommy is central. 3. Aboriginals are presented as savage and stupid. 4. Missionaries form the subject. It seems Tommy had a bone to pick with missionaries. Early Noosa resident John Monks recalled that King Tommy would sit at the campfire to chat with him. He noticed he liked to rail against one missionary, Reverend Edmund Fuller, the subject of the No Sir and T-Want-Him tales. In the T-Want-Him story, Tommy begs Fuller for food, yet Tommy's complaint to monks was not that the missionary was stingy, but rather that he was condescending and ignorant. He complained that Fuller presumed Kabi people were helpless and needed to learn to farm. This, in fact, may have been the whole point of the joke of presenting himself as desperate for Fuller's assistance. Tommy told monks. That white fella with collar did not know what he talk about. Him silly fella. We know how to get our own food. Place naming revenge. King Tommy was not the only aboriginal elder to engage in place naming revenge. Since the 1880s, with the rise of Australian nationalism, much interest had emerged in restoring traditional place names, to give Australian places a more distinctive, local flavour. Consequently, Aboriginal people were often pestered to explain local place names. In the 1890s, Mr. Radford, who was at the time acting as Assistant Clerk of Parliament, was given the task of harassing Kerwally, King Sandy, a headman who Tommy sometimes fished and camped with in Redcliffe. Kerwally tired of Mr. Radford, especially as he was given no recompense for his time. Thus he started inventing place names that sounded close to the original but had other meanings. Particularly, he offered, Kutha, instead of, Gucha, or, Mapi, Wild Honorable A, for Mount Kutha. Instead of giving either Gucha or Mapi, he willfully, of most wicked malice aforethought, gave him a word, the use of which, if translated into English, would be rewarded with a fine of anything up to five pounds. The aboriginal protector Archibald Meston tried, in vain, to have this rectified. The same process seems to have occurred with regards to T1, Im, No Sir, and Nani. Given what we know of John Tedford's friendship and work with Tommy, and Tommy's role in regularly providing place name and linguistic advice, it is highly likely Tommy authored all three stories. He deliberately painted himself as the, dumb savage, as he did in his Nunda story, and presented things that he knew were historically impossible, to, take the mickey, out of whites, especially missionaries. A search for true meanings. What then, are the true origins of, Noosa, and, Tawantan? The linguist Fred Watson thought the word nusa more likely pertained to shadow or spirits. I think the word is probably Nuthuru, or as some of the blackfellas pronounced it, Nuthuru, meaning literally, a shadow but also a ghost i.e. the shadow of a man. The superstitious nature of the blackfellas caused them to name many mounts and headlands after some form of spirit. The headland of Noosa was an appropriate abode for spirits. It was a cornucopia of medicinal herbs, marked by a ceremonial circle on the summit of Noosa Hill, which was called Wantima, rising, climbing up, sometimes this term was applied to Noosa as a whole. E.G. Heap, the state librarian, who significantly researched Sunshine Coast history during the 1940s-1970s to suggests in one letter to David Lowe, an early settler, that Noosa Hills, rising up, also provides the meaning for, to Wanton. Tay place of, Wantum, rising or climbing up. I prefer, this, derivation which is similar to Wantimba, the aboriginal name for the high ground at Noosa. Aboriginal place names typically carried several different meanings, condensing the various uses or significances of the site. Fred Watson was inclined to interpret Tawantan to as Dan Wadan, place of dead trees or logs, or just dead trees. In 1929, he elaborated. Meaning, dead trees, should be Dorwa Dan. The words meaning dead trees are Dorwa do but the blackfellas in this case, and also another, see Tyro, used the adjective only. Watson repeated this assertion ten years later, adding that the words derived specifically from Dawwa, dried or withered, a word applied to dead trees by the aboriginals, he surmised this term may have derived from aboriginal observations of the timber industry. This name was probably applied to the place in early days when timber getting and sawmilling was then carried on, on a considerable scale in the locality. This was also the position of Ball. He believed the term came from, watching the flotillas of logs which were floated down river to Tawantan. Even Rod Adams felt the term reflected the, aboriginal attempts to come to grips with rafting logs to Lake Cootharaba. Dead trees or trees of the dead. There are several reasons to doubt the surmise that Tawantan pertained to the timber industry. Firstly, it is highly unlikely Aboriginal people only developed a place name after Europeans arrived. Even very small areas usually had indigenous names for thousands of years. Between 1862 and 1871, Tawantan was certainly the center of floating logs. The logs were contained at Weron Lake at Tewantan and Colloy opposite Gympie Terrace, 50 though Cutharaba sawmill at Alanda Point point eventually took precedence due to its mill. The Tewantan area also had some corkwood, which was commercially harvested. However, floating of logs occurred all over this area, not just Terwantan. There were floating longs from Lake Kutharaba and Karoiba to the sea. Further, when William Pettigrew journeyed around Terwantan and Noosa in 1863, specifically to locate marketable timber, he found none of the local woods suitable for milling, judging them too sparse and too poor in quality to merit cutting. A final consideration is that dried or withered or dead does not describe lumber. Timber was cut and rafted green. Thus, it is probable that the deadwood reference had a different origin, even if a timberworking connection may have eventually developed, it being common for aboriginal place names to continually evolve. One clue is offered from Pettigrew's descriptions. When he traveled around this area, and especially up Kin Kin Creek, he noticed his progress was frequently barred for dead timber in the creek. This suggests fallen branches and driftwood naturally clogged local waterways from time to time. In other words, the area had a lot of natural floating dead wood that may have inspired the name. A more important clue is the many words pertaining to trees and spirits used for this specific area. We have noted dead trees and shade, a definition Heap proposes for Noosa. The short creek forming the very heart of Tawantan was called Wuroi. It already appears in the town plan of 1870, its meaning likely related to Wuru leaves. Dunella Lake, central to Tawantan, meant, wood, D-H-U-A, that was, empty or hollow, nulu, which heap attributes to beehives but which could equally relate to burial, skeletal remains often being interred inside trees. David Bull suggests Dunella may also be a form of, fruit, and, fig tree, dini. Fig groves were often used for burial. Spirit and Tree may both reference Kabi-Kabi funerary practice. It was elaborate, involving various stages such as exposing bodies on tree platforms till the flesh and dropped off, carrying bones about in a large basket, and interring specific bones or entire skeletons in hollow trees and forks of tree limbs, especially groves of figs, such as once flourished around Tawantan. John Tedford recalled elaborate funerary rites culminating in the burial of King Tommy's wife at Tomahawk Point between Tawantan and North Shore. The vicinity of Wurri Creek was in fact a traditional burial ground, note this was the word for, leaves. However, many corpses were, wrapped in bark and placed in trees, one such tree, closer to the heart of Tawantan, is still known as the, Memorial Park fig, here Clary Ross accidentally dislodged funerary parcels. The grand old fig tree in the Memorial Park was an aboriginal burial place. With some other boys I was playing under the fig tree when he noticed something tied to one of the top branches. They said to me, you are the best climber, go up and see what it is. Climbing up I could see it was a parcel of bark tied to the limb with lawyer vines. I undid the vine and the parcel fell to the ground. Inside was an abo's corpse. We did not wait to see any more. We would have been killed if any of those aboriginals had been around. Figs were especially valued for funerary use because they rapidly grow over objects, thus absorbing the deceased. The emphasis on leaves, Wuru, e.g. the name of the creek Wuroi, probably pertains to the fact that leaves of these burial trees were plucked to talk to the deceased interred therein. The Kabi Seriko family still recall some of their ancestors interred in the Tawantan Memorial fig. If the lakes and river at Tawantan was naturally clogged with fallen timber, and the area had groves of figs, this would have made it favourable for a funerary ground. We have many accounts from other parts of S.E. Queensland of funerary grounds being in areas of thickets, wattle, vine forest, fig groves, often shaded and across a creek or lake, exactly the situation of the Noosa-Tawantan area. Getting to know King Tommy The complexity surrounding the naming of Noosa demonstrates how little we know of King Tommy, despite him being so respected by the settlers at Tawantan and nowadays becoming an iconic figure associated with the Shire's birth. Here we will reconstruct what we can determine about his character and achievements. Photos show that King Tommy was a nuggety, muscular man with a broad face, his hair shortly cropped, in later life, bald. His powerful frame matches what his contemporaries recall of his physical abilities. Thorne described him as an unusually vigorous man, Carter called him a splendid specimen of Australian Aboriginal, and others described him as most tigerish in fighting. Among his brother Aborigines, in a famous incident in 1880, 26-year-old Tommy physically assisted in apprehending Carby Bushranger Johnny Campbell at Tewandton by tracking, overpowering and tying him up. Even when older, he was impressive, old Tommy has in his time been a fine man, without doubt. He is a fine man still, emphasis added. Tommy the Timber Getter Beginning in the 1860s, William Pettigrew mostly employed black fellas, carby men, to do the timber rafting around Noosa and the Mary River. The young Tommy became part of this team. St. James Carter, who knew King Tommy at this time, described him as one of the hardest and most capable of the timber workers, also involved in road building. He could compete with any of the white timber getters in falling a big cowrie tree. He did a lot of work roadmaking, rafting etc. at Coolathan Creek in the early days. Not only was Tommy a skilled axoman, but he had an acute capacity for spotting good stands of timber, he would climb a tree, fix his eye on a cedar five or six miles away, and walk straight to it, with King Tommy as the helm, George Harris logged 400,000 feet of timber by Lake Kutharaba and Kin Kin at one point. Further evidence of Tommy's skill with timber is that he built himself a European-style house from galvanized iron and wood at Noosa's north shore. It was quite similar in size and style to many settler cottages of that era and region. Tommy the tour guide Several white families developed Noosa's early tourism the Donovans, Parkins, Massouds. This pioneer tourism focused on guesthouse hotels and an outdoors experience. In fact, early Noosa was originally little more than guesthouse hotels. As these places formed a new and important livelihood, it is not too surprising that Kabi people became actively involved as hotel staff. Most visitors to Noosa during the 1870s to 1900s recall King Tommy as their host, guide, and assistant, working alongside the hotels. He did whatever odd jobs the hotels required, including regular raking and yard work. As one visitor to the Royal Mail Hotel recalled, Tommy was very much the one-man welcoming committee. A gaunt figure, of dusky complexion and stubbly white beard, is seen laboriously raking leaves, from the well-grassed lawn which slopes down to the riverside. Good day, sir, is his greeting. Good day, is the return salute. Me King Tommy, King Onusa, and you are duly introduced. Me belong all this place, explains the proud monarch. This my river, my land, all belong to me. Tomorrow Sunday, you like crab? Emphasis added. The last request concerning crab is indicative. It seems Tommy and his people provided the contents of many of the meals for the hotel's guests. He was renowned as an expert crabber. However, Tommy was most known for his tours. These were even advertised in the Brisbane Courier. There are plenty of boats to be had. King Tommy, the chief of the Noosa tribe, Sergeant Brown, Willie Dunn, and Susan, are noted aboriginals of the district, and will readily assist visitors in their peregrinations. From the start, King Tommy was a central component of the Noosa tourist experience. As early as 1871, Ebenezer Thorne recalled, Tommy, a teenager at the time, as an informative, faithful, companion and guide for all his journeys around the Noosa district. Tommy even, reluctantly, enlightened Thorne on Kabi beliefs, explaining. Many, many long years ago, the whole of the world had all been made by Beryl, who he believed was the same to the blackfella as God to the white. He was like a huge turtle and made all these things as he floated about on the surface of the waters. The Noosa region was still largely a wilderness. Thus, King Tommy's boat tours comprised fishing, bird hunting 81 or oystering trips as well as simply taking in the scenery. For the amusement of tourists, Tommy and his sons additionally engaged guests in traditional swimming games and European-style regattas. Tommy's capacity in regattas and boating were renowned. Visitors recall he had splendid hands at the oar. Tommy as fisher and crabber. Eliza Donovan ran Noosa's main guest house, Laguna House, after 1903, accommodating up to 150 visitors at what became one of Queensland's most popular spots for Honorable A-moons and getaways. The seafood menu of the guest house, mostly fish, oysters and crabs. This was entirely provided by King Tommy and his wife Queen Emma, paid in tobacco, tea and sugar. Tommy's skill in crabbing was legendary, and he was careful to never reveal where he obtained his bountiful catches. Tommy got up and walked off with his tomahawk, presently returning with three tremendous crabs. We never could see these crabs running about, and nothing determining the mode of their capture could be got out of Tommy, who was peculiarly jealous about these matters. If there were sufficient oysters, or it was the time of the post-Bunya Oyster Festival, which involved many tribes, Tommy would also host many El fresco repasts under the fig trees, and invite European visitors to join in. Tommy would additionally go bee hunting Honorable A. Collecting, with his wife, but most of all he was known as an expert crabber, who tutored whites in techniques as well as providing them with excellent specimens. He did this on Morton Bay as well as around Noosa. Tommy was also remembered as a champion fisherman, a highly skilled but humorous companion on fishing trips. A retired fisherman stated that the best fishing he ever had in his life was with King Tommy. He claimed that of all the joys he would like to experience again, nothing would please me better than to have King Tommy on one more fishing trip. Conclusion The true story of Noosa's place names reveals the antiquity and indigenous roots of Noosa Shire. It also reveals the humor of one of the iconic figures of early Noosa, King Tommy. King Tommy rightly defined the earliest phases of Noosa tourism, having shaped it with his pleasant hosting and well-renowned excursion.